As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. I don't know how we're going to break down this Laguna Seca mayhem fest, shall we call it, but we're going to do our best on this week's episode. We're going to wrap up all of the championships and battles and fights and awards that were won over the course of the weekend. And we're also going to get into how the race was won itself, how Scott Dixon notched another victory, how pretty much every driver spent at some point of the race, either at the front or at the back, um, in in some sort of weird order um i don't know how much clarity we're going to be able to bring to it but um i'm always glad to have jr hildebrand alongside me to help with that sort of thing first of all jr uh welcome back and yeah i guess um thanks for all the recommendations you gave me while i was out in san francisco and sausalito and then to to montreal as well i had some nice coffee and some nice food so i have to say a big public thank you for that and uh yeah hope you've had a hope you've had a good weekend yourself and you were mooching around the paddock a little bit there so um hopefully that's uh, positive for you as well yeah yeah always good to be back home I've, I've got a i've got a pretty easy uh and and reliable like fly in fly out same day program from denver so uh, <laughs> i wasn't wasn't in california for very long but um but yeah good to be in the paddock good to be there kind of just you know catch a sense of the vibe uh, in the last weekend, obviously a lot of new things coming for everybody, uh, it, you know, heading into next year and, and still some uncertainty. So uh, interesting just to kind of, you know, I, I think as you can probably, we'll, we'll sort of keep our, uh, keep our off record conversations with people off the record here, but it was <laughs> definitely interesting to me that I felt like for the first time in a long time, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, you, we kind of, you sort of hear rumblings about and you hear some concerns about and things like that. People were really openly talking about you know, a lot of that kind of stuff uh, heading into this weekend and just, and just their plans for next year. And, um, you know, definitely it, it was, uh, it was interesting from that perspective, just to, just to kind of catch a whiff of that basically by being around the paddock. So good to be there. Good. Just kind of catch up with people and and see what's going on. And, you know, obviously from my boat, from my perspective you know there's certainly still some some full-time seats that are yet to be yet to be locked in but more and more i mean for anybody just thinking about this in the context of drivers that are out there or or uh you know guys that are in kind of a free agent situation like myself even just looking at indianapolis you know the landscape is just getting more and more complicated uh because of the fact that the full-time seats the full-time teams the relationships that they have with the engine oems as they are kind of tightening their you know bootstraps to a degree the supply for a lot of the stuff that we're looking at whether it be engines because there's still a sort of question mark in terms of when exactly is the next engine cycle going to happen and what is that is there going to be change there and who's still involved in it at that point you know what's the manufacturer situation you know i guess it's sort of three years from now um obviously the hybrid is kind of on the horizon here that's creating for you know, there's there's still a little ways to go until that's sorted out. The teams don't really understand quite what the cost is going to be there. The manufacturers are not sure about either the cost or the or the supply for that. Obviously, everybody knows that there's 
there needs to be 33 cars on the grid at Indianapolis next year. It would surprise me if there's more than that, frankly, for some of these reasons, just because I think we're getting into a territory here where the constraints are so high from so in so many different ways that it basically just doesn't do anybody any good uh, from a supplier perspective inside the series to be, and, and, and maybe from a team point of view, um, to be taking on more risk, more financial risk by there being more cars. Um, so, so certainly from my point of view, that's a little bit of the, the game here is sort of just understanding a little bit more clearly what, do, what is that web of, you know, relationships and how do they all affect each other heading into next year? So definitely while we've, while we've already gone through a lot of the silly season, I guess this year, there's still plenty to go in terms of just exactly what's going to go on for, for 2024. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure our listeners will be excited to hear you being in the paddock and keeping your thumb on on what's going on, keeping those relationships going. Um, but that you did you did possibly burn one bridge over the weekend, and uh, my wife, who was out for the race, was very disappointed that you didn't come and say hi to us over the over the course of the weekend. So <laughs> I'm very sorry. I'll make I'll make sure I'll make sure to reconcile that next time around. <laughs> Ladle on the old JR Hildebrand charm and everything will be fine. I'm I'm sure. Let's uh let's move on and get into some of this race because um yeah, I guess there's so much to get to and we'll probably address some of the little things you've touched on there in the in the intro as well. Um I guess I kinda wanted to do this in a bit of a reverse order to, from from how we usually do the pod. We usually get straight into the race and talk about what's happened and, and how it's kind of unfolded. But given that the, the main championship was wrapped up in, in Portland um, and we know that Scott Dixon won the race. I thought it might be nice to kind of do this in a bit of a reverse way and, and look at some of the the championships or uh, point situations or battles, uh, important positioning in the championship, et cetera, et cetera, that were decided in um, in Laguna Seca. So I wanted to start with the, the manufacturer's battle because it's it's never really, I don't think, dawned on me and there's probably a reason for this um like how cool it is how the manufacturers points work and it's obviously that the the top two score two cars are scoring points but as soon as the as soon as a car that has has used too many engines so you've got four a season as soon as that like an entrant has ticked over to five they're no longer eligible to score manufacturers points we've got in a weird situation in laguna seca where like Honda's top scorers were Lungard in sixth. And I think the, I, I can't even remember who the next person was. I think it might've even been Grosjean in 11th with their uh, top scorers in the race, even though Dixon won the race with a, with a Honda engine and uh, Will Power and Callum Eilot, who were, um, who were third and fourth there, obviously had a massive say in um, Chevrolet kind of coming out on top there in the manufacturer's championship. And I, I guess I, I'm just saying all this because it's, I find it interesting that, Obviously, a Honda car has won the drivers' championship with Alex Pillow. Chevy obviously got the benefit of uh, winning the Indy 500 with Joseph Newgarden. But if you look at the stats across the season, whether it's poles, wins, you know, Honda are quite far ahead in both of those categories, and it's quite a big swing from last year. But because of the reliability situation, Chevrolet have been able to to kind of win the manufacturers' championship. So it's just, I guess, it's maybe, and and this is what I was coming to. It's it's maybe the fact that because we're reducing the number of engines allowed each, well, not each year necessarily, every single year, but it seems like we're using fewer and fewer engines, right? That's the trend in motorsport and that's the way rules kind of go. But because we've got to this point now where everyone's having to use four, the, the, the chances of people needing an extra one at the end of the year is getting much higher. And that's creating these kind of weird battles that we got like we did in, in Laguna Seca. Is that, how, what's your kind of take on the point system and how that works? Because I I've, it's I, th- I guess because of that reason, because we're getting more and more drivers taking that fifth and, and sixth engine, that it's it's kind of made it even more interesting from that perspective because you're just not looking for the top Chevrolet and the top Honda. You're looking for the top one that is actually eligible to score. Yeah, and I think that uh, it's, it's actually pretty simple as long as you're aware of, like when you're watching it, that you're aware that that's how it works. Right. And so, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and that for the most part, it really only comes into play at the end of the year. Like you've only, uh-huh. you know, cause when, when, when did Scott Dixon take his grid penalty and, and last, you know, sixth engine here, like at gateway or something or. Yes. Yeah. I think it was. And gateway. so we had another one obviously at Laguna as well. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, so it's a little bit of one of those things that like, if nobody's talking about it, then I think it can be kind of confusing, but it's actually probably the right way for it to work because ultimately 
a manufacturer shouldn't be able to just like the the main thing that they're being asked to do is not have engines blowing up and you know be have to you you know it's kind of the it basically if you make it so that there's no consequence for just chucking engines at your fast cars then then what's the point of having any of these rules in the first place right and so <laughs> um the grid penalties i think are they're a part of that you know we for a period of time did away with grid penalties due to engine changes now we've kind of brought them back in a slightly reduced form because i think initial like originally with this engine format i think it was 10 grid spots which you know you can imagine that if that just if that just happens because of a reliability issue and it's kind of a one-off thing you know you're going to a road course or whatever like 10 grid spots will totally can totally kill your race regardless of how good you are or where you're at so they've kind of brought that back to they they did away with it completely i think for a period of time now we've got that back at six um you know we we kind of know you know from inside the paddock that there's a little bit of jockeying for engine spec at the indianapolis 500 and so usually the full-time cars will even if they're not quite sort of mileaged out on their previous engine, they'll usually get a fresh engine that sometimes comes with like an updated spec specifically for the race at Indianapolis. And then you'll, you'll kind of be using those two engines, call it like your, your second and third engine or whatever until you mileage the one of them out. And then you're kind of on to onto one for the rest of the year. So there, so there are some, I guess, intricacies of how the manufacturers are allowed to kind of manipulate engine usage during the year because of stuff like that. But that, yeah, I think that, I think that they've, the series has kind of gotten this right in terms of what it ends up amounting to in terms of the the manufacturer's championship, because, you know, does, does Honda, would Chevrolet have preferred to win more races and be on more poles this year? Of course, but if they, I mean, they won the 500 and then they can, they can hang their hat on the fact that they won the manufacturer's championship. You'd probably take those two things over winning 12 races, but not either of those two. Right. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to kind of see the, the, the sort of different incentives basically behind those different things. I'll give you a funny story now, which I think I'm probably in the clear to talk about because it was like, literally 10 years ago, <laughs> but, um, in, uh, in 2013, so it was the second year of these motors. Uh, I had raced for Panther 12 and 12 in the first half of the year in 13. So it was on the Chevy side at that time, particularly on the oval, like the speedway package, the 1.3 bar, you know, 1.3 bar boost package. The Chevy was, you know, pretty, pretty considerably better like you know it was going to be hard to beat a chevrolet team at that point i feel like at that boost level um i think this was before honda switched to the twin turbo so it was still a difference between you know chevy was a twin turbo engine package and honda was still running a single turbo which you know at the beginning of these regulations that was open you know basically you had like different different size turbo options if you ran a single or double, blah, blah, blah. So long, the short of it was, was Honda that ended up, I think maybe going in 2014, moving away from that at the time, that was where they were at their biggest, their most significant disadvantage was in this, you know, short oval or this, uh, speedway oval package in terms of the boost level. Um, I ran for, I raced for Brian Herta Autosport, which was a Honda team for the last two races of that season, which included Fontana, which was one of those races last race of the year was going to come down to it basically like you know same same like this year like the the championship battle between the two manufacturers was going to be decided at the final race and i was one of like two or three honda cars in the entire field that was still eligible eligible to score points (laughs) and so we had like going into the race this was totally unbeknownst to us like ganassi was the sort of quote-unquote factory Honda team basically at that point like they were the sort of the works team they did all the testing you know Chevrolet had kind of spread out their testing amongst different teams Honda was like tight with Ganassi and so it had turned out that 
Anda had discovered that there was a way to get around the boost limit in race. And so they so they had fa- they had found a way to get get around to basically over boost the engine momentarily but not get an over boost penalty for it. And so uh and it was kind of this whole like goofy got to have the thing in the right settings and like you know it's sort of like tricking the ECU and and all this kind of stuff. And so they ended up they ended up working this out like the series ended up figuring out that they had figured out how to do this. So I don't, I don't feel like I'm totally like blowing this wide open somehow right now, but, <laughs> but basically because I was one of those cars and it was going to come down to where we ended up in the race, there was kind of this like, okay, if this ends up being like a dog fight at like, if you get in the last stint and you're in the hunt, we're going to like, we're going to tell you how to do this because it might be the difference between you being able to like get by a car or not basically at the end of the race. And so it's we had this I'm whole, just, I'm imagining, I'm imagining in my head, like the, the cheat codes that you used to do on like uh Grand Theft Auto or something on a PlayStation 2, where it's like up, down, left, right, square circles, triangle, square circle, to, triangle. I had to get in the car after they talked, <laughs> after they talked to us about it, I had to go get in the car and like, figure out like, okay, so what's the order of all of this shit that I have to change to like be able to do this weird thing. Um, and, and ultimately we, we were running like fourth or fifth at the end of the race and blew up with, you know, in the last stint, which was, which was a total bummer. I was like, okay, like I, I was, I was really waiting to get the, to get the code word, (laughs) but it was, it was time to to give it like full gas. But, uh, (laughs) I mean, I, I guess that's just a little a little funny story to to sort of tell you how much winning the manufacturer's championship matters and that you do end up in these weird situations when only certain cars can become el- only certain cars are eligible for it. Um, you know, that that's that can be kind of a, a fun and interesting and, and probably in, in some cases like high pressure scenario. Um to suddenly be a car that's not usually being depended on to like go win the race, but suddenly is uh is a very important one to the manufacturer so yeah i'm sure they're both desperate to win what should be the last of this rule cycle as well before the hybrid comes in i'm sure jr from being around the paddock like i was um this weekend at least um i was also in portland as well but the the kind of chat has been a little bit concerning recently regarding the the hybrid and the implementation of that. Um, obviously, it was delayed previously until 2024. Um, we know there's a extensive test program coming up. Um, getting the car on track's not actually been a problem. They've done that already. But um, I, I guess a combination of trying to get this thing ready, trying to work out a, a format that works and also have the, the, the parts and the number of parts in place to basically field at least 33 cars at the 500 and also for the rest of the season as well um a little bit concerning as to the progress kind of being made there and and where they're at with that so um we've got some tests coming up i know there's one next week at at sebring um there's definitely some some work to be done there it's you know indycar have not said on the record or anything that we're going to get another delay or, or anything like that but there's definitely been some some concerning chatter in the paddock, let's say, about the status of where we're at, at the moment. So that's definitely something we need to keep an eye on in the in the coming weeks and months to see where they get to with this. Because I don't think it's fair to to kind of rule this out now or anything like that. Um, that there's time left for them to test and and develop and and get some of these things sorted out. But it's just a little bit of a concerning period that that the the last couple of weekends have kind of shed a light on there. Yeah, I guess I would say I think my general perspective on it is. What the manufacturers, what Chevy and Honda working in in collaboration with each other have actually managed to do in terms of what this hybrid unit can and I think will eventually actually be is pretty remarkable. Like the the, the fact that they've I mean they've they've been able to shed like a hundred pounds off of this thing from what it was originally going to be. I mean a lot of the things that you that you could so easily point to at the beginning of this process and gripe at, like, I mean, because I, I think I think understandably, I think I mean, look, I think we all understand that this is basically just like a a thing that's being done to sort of appease manufacturers and was being done, I think, initially to with the intention of it being a component of attracting a third manufacturer that for various reasons, hybrid 
probably not being a significant factor in it one way or the other, you know, hasn't hasn't happened. It doesn't appear to be happening really in the near in the near future, like as a part of this existing cycle that we've got going on right now that that seems that's likely to extend to 2026 through the end of 2026. Um, And so there's and so but because it was committed to and Honda in particular is, you know, a lot of the production production cars, you just go on, you know, Honda USA, Honda America, whatever dot com and go look at their production cars. You'll see that a, a dramatic range of cars that are now being offered with hybrid powertrains you can you can understand why this makes sense from a sort of consumer connection point of view to honda in particular um the reality of it is that to do this in an indie car to do it at the level that they've decided it sort of needs to be done at so not just jamming a spec unit in the car but but truly developing something that to everybody involved feels proper for for the usage that it's going to have which i think we should just call a spade a spade here and say that a hybrid powertrain on an oval is ultimately like a difficult thing to kind of figure out how that completely makes sense and so that's a part of why they've sort of taken this in-house and done the development because they because we certainly don't want for this to end up being something that makes the cars slower or less safe or you know any of those things and so um that's a big part of the weight reduction that's a big part of you know sort of the systems that they're developing for this thing you know making it as you know sort of uh versatile in terms of deployment and and regen and all of these things as it might be um, I think ultimately just all of that together is making this so it's taking it's like a real serious engineering project. And so it's just it's it's been hard for everybody to stick a timeline on that. And, and unfortunately, I think they're at a point here now where it seems like they sort of need to have some high magnitude gains in terms of reliability and stress and they need to get to a point that they feel comfortable that they can put this into production. I think they feel good about the direction that it's going and they feel good about sort of the, the effort that's going in and the, I think we will ultimately, I I was probably one at the beginning of this whole process that just said, like, if the car is not going to be, if it's just going to be a spec unit, if the, if it's going to make the car heavier, if the, if the deployment is not significant in terms of horsepower, it's got to be at least some of those. It's got to be either innovative or make the car more efficient or make the car faster or something for it to make sense. Uh, we're moving towards it, doing at least some of those things. Um, but it's it's obviously just taking some time. And and as we've seen across motorsport, these hybrid units that are intended to last for this kind of period of time, you know, I mean, I think the the aim is for this hybrid package for the unit to be able to last basically a full season. Um, and so I think at the moment we're not we're we're certainly not at that level of reliability yet. And then you got to factor in that they got to produce to your point, they got to produce a lot of these things. You know, so part of it is just getting getting it to where it needs to be. The other part of it is going through a production cycle which all of this stuff just takes time. And some of it still is unknown in terms of what that timeline is going to be. I think you've given us a really good insight into all, all of the, the the situation there. I think just one thing before we move on is just to kind of explain why all of that is such an issue and why other series can just smash a load of batteries in a car and make it work. Like that's just not going to be, that was just never an option for an IndyCar to retrofit giant batteries to to the current spec IndyCar chassis and be able to make that work in a way that would be safe, um, you know, usable, uh, not ruin the performance of the car or at least be a significant downturn in terms of performance. So the super capacitor that they're using is much lighter. It's supposed to be less volatile from a, from a, a safety aspect. Um, if you do crash, it's also good for high bursts of energy um, as opposed to a battery which is better for like longer sustained periods of use so the capacitor is great for push to pass because that's like instant um, high levels of horsepower so 
the, the these are some of the things that the manufacturers are dealing with and they're doing it from a point of view that it's not really been done before in a in an open wheel or single seater kind of arena like this before and especially not retrofitted to an old car that wasn't built for that in the first place so these are some of the problems if you're sitting sitting sit sit listen to the podcast and going just put some batteries in it and put a like put a spec unit in it that's just that's why that doesn't work because it's just the series of issues that that indycar are kind of going through with that so um jr we'll take a quick break and then i promise listeners will get back to uh, everything that happened at laguna seca over the weekend looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jay, I want to rattle through some of the other kind of awards and, and things that happened. Um, we should congratulate uh, Marcus Armstrong for winning the Rookie of the Year title. He beat uh, Agustin Canapino, who we'll get on to in just a second. And in a kind of similar way, I guess, we should also congratulate another uh, Indy Lights slash Indy Next alumni to join you, JR, with uh, Christian Rasmussen winning the, uh, well, HMD's second championship in a row after Linus Lundqvist last year with a pretty dominating year when it came down to it really um it's it's been a bit up and down there's been some people come to the fore and then drop away but uh, christian's been one of the kind of main constants and um if you're desperate for us to talk a little bit more about him we're not going to now but we will have christian coming on the show in the next couple of weeks to talk about his whole year if you remember last year we did an episode uh, kind of interviewing all of the road to indie champions uh, we'll do the same thing again we might not do it all in one episode it might spread a few out but we'll have the likes of christian rasmussen and hopefully some of the other champions from the the road to indie ladder or the usf championships as it's called now um usf pro championships um whatever you want to call it you can call it we're we're not fussy about names here we know what you're talking about when you when you talk about it so we'll be happy with it jr and i the other uh, person I mentioned there was Agustin Canapino, who looked like he was on for, well, he, I, arguably, I think he did have his best race of the season, even though it didn't kind of end in the way he wanted it to. But uh, I don't recall, I think Toronto was a bit of a breakthrough for him in terms of just like being that bit closer to some of the midfield and consistently closer to his teammate, Carmine lot as well, over the course of a weekend, especially when that was his... I think it was definitely his first um, like kind of rain experience on a street course anyway in IndyCar. It might have even been his first like rainy experience in a race weekend in, in IndyCar as well for Augustin. Um, but coming back to Laguna, he was, you know, like he was putting Alexander Rossi under some serious pressure while they were fighting in the in the top six, uh, ran in the, the top three for a little while. And even towards the end of the race, had got ahead of Alex Pelot on Pelot's strategy. So theoretically if things had have gone normally for him um there's a good chance he would have uh, been at least where alex around where alex plo was unfortunately there was some damage uh, callum Eilert tried to go around the outside of him uh, did go around the outside of him um augustine got a little snap of of overs there and just moved over and clipped callum's uh, left rear and that damaged um augustine's wing so he kind of fell back uh, i was very sad to see callum had to make his um social media um yeah had to make his social media private during the or after the weekend based on some abuse he was getting for some of the kind of wheel-to-wheel -wheel action with his teammate there again 
Um, similar kind of thing happened in Long Beach. If you want to go back and kind of remind yourself what happened there, then go ahead and, and check that out. But yeah, a uh, bit of a bit of a sad way to end the weekend there after such a positive weekend for Hunkos Hollinger where they fought their way into the leader's circle with Augustin. That result, that 14th place, even though he tumbled down the field, was crucial for jumping him into the leader's circle. Points at the, I guess, at the downside of uh, Devlin Di Francesco, who I think was caught in a few different incidents, but also didn't do himself any favours by smashing into David Malukas at, at turn four during the race there. So um, a little bit of uh, being caught up in different things, a little bit of causing his own kind of trouble, um, was trying to limp the car home and ended up being called in um, because he was just so far off the pace by the end of the race. Um, Andretti were desperate to get him back out again, but weren't able to um, as the kind of checkered flag flew. And because Joseph Newgarden was on track at that point, he scored ahead of Devlin. So that that one tiny little thing was the difference between um, Devlin being in the leader circle and, and being out of it. So uh, pretty dis- disappointing weekend for the Andretti team that are already deciding whether to go from three from four cars to three cars potentially with with Devlin leaving the team uh, at the end of this race. Um, Roman Grosjean I think was their top finisher in 11th uh, in his last race with the team as well um, so yeah bit of a bit of an up and down weekend for two different teams there I guess positives and negatives for both um, but Andretti definitely definitely, definitely had a, a difficult weekend there what else do we want to mention JR we want to mention um, Pato Ward looks like he's got his super license there's a bit of it's a bit contentious looking at the super license. If, you, if you've ever looked at the super license points rules, uh, I feel sorry for you for a start. Um, I've looked at them more times than I care to imagine and wish I'd wish I'd never had to see them again. But unfortunately, I probably will at some point. But um, there was a rule that they brought in with COVID basically that allowed drivers to take a year previous. Um, if either of their championship years that they were counting points for were in 2020 or 2020, 2021, they um, could basically take one of the years previous if they needed to. And it looks like if Pato does that, that he has got the 40 points that he needs for a super license. That's interesting because we had quite a few um, McLaren stories develop over the weekend. All of the silly season moves that we said were going to happen last week have happened since the last pod. So they've all they've all come to fruition. You've got Felix Rosenquist moving to Maya Shank, David Malukas moving to McLaren to replace him. Uh, Marcus Armstrong getting his full-time seat with Ganassi for next season. The McLaren whole situation. So we had Malukas announced on Friday. We also had Zach Brown talking to media where he said that he didn't expect Alex Plow to turn up for his reserve duties in Formula One the weekend after, which was uh, an interesting development. I then I then asked Alex about that and he confirmed that he's not going to be uh, taking up his, uh, he's not going to be going to any F1 races for the rest of the year, basically. So um, some kind of developments on the Palo McLaren side, probably what people were expecting, but it was nice to get all that confirmed on the record and know exactly what was what was going to happen there. And we also had uh, Zach talking about uh, a new engineering truck that's going to be coming for next year. I don't know if you heard about this in the paddock, JR, but uh, I did not. it sounds it sounds pretty interesting. Um, he was basically asked, is it going to be like some of the haulers that we have in IndyCar already with just a few like extra bits in it? And he's like kind of making out this is going to be much closer to an F1 engineering truck um, with a lot of cool stuff in it. There was kind of Marshall Pruitt from Racer was kind of uh, teasingly trying to work out if there was going to be a driver in loop simulator included there as well in, in that whole package. And um, let's just say Gavin Moore didn't rule that out. So um, it'll be interesting to see what the final spec of that that whole truck is. Um, but uh, we'll keep an eye on that developing and you can read a feature about that on thehyphenrace.com as well if you wish uh, this week, depending on when you're listening to the podcast, the week that it came out at least, I can say that much. Um, so Pato, um, yeah, actually looks like he's got a super license points. Um, but a key kind of move in the championship was that he ended up staying where he was in the championship, stayed in fourth. Um, but he was jumped by Scotty Mack, who went from fifth to third, and Joseph Newgarden went from third to fifth. So I think Scott McLaughlin and his, well, it's obviously the Thursday Threes is the nickname of that team, the number three car. Scotty's third season in IndyCar and finished third in the championship, which is his best result for for his career. So the, the number three doing some work for, for Scotty Mack over the weekend, but that was another big change in the, in the championship there, given that we knew kind of how the top two uh, positions were, were going to work themselves out. One of those, of course, was Scott Dixon, who went on to win the race. The first thing I want to get into with Dixon, JR is, um, he was pretty upset after the race about his penalty that he received on the first lap. If you've not seen that yet, you can go back and watch it on social media or in the, in the 
brilliant IndyCar highlights packages that they have on YouTube that you can go back and watch. He basically gets a bit of oversteer X turn to what is turn two, I, I guess. Um, and then yeah, smashes you, yeah. into Arena's VK and puts him in the gravel. I, I think Scott's biggest, well, he was really super annoyed about that during the race that that penalty had been given. Um, I think when you watched enough replays and you worked out that Colton Herter hadn't spun him round, which is what I thought initially when I saw that. Um, I think he he did make contact with Colton. Dixon though. seemed to. I mean, I don't think anyone in the post race press conference actually flat out said did her to touch you, but he was asked to explain what had happened, and he didn't mention being touched or being spun or or anything like that. Well, I guess I, I mean I because I was so I was at that point I was home so I was watching it on TV and they showed fifteen replays of yeah. it that seemed sort of inconclusive, but then they finally showed the nose cam from Herta, which is far enough forward that you can't see the wings. So you can't uh-huh. like, you can't actually see the contact be made, but it, I mean, like when it would have happened, it seemed like there was clearly a disturbance to the angle of like the nose cam. And then Dixon just comes firing across. So uh, not that, not that that's Colton's fault, like, but I, 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 I'm kind of, I, I don't always, or you even usually agree with Townsend Bell, but <laughs> I do, I do think that he was right, just about that playing a, that at least playing a role in terms yeah. of what happened there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if if that was the case and there was a touch there, then it does kind of change the complexion of the whole thing a, a little bit. But I think Dixon was more annoyed in the post race about the fact that he'd been given a drive through for that and not been given like a you need to drop back one space. Um, what do you make of that? Because I was okay with the 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 drive through call there because Rena said we're talking about fighting for strong position in the top basically five there, and Renus's race is basically over. He's toast at that point, like he's stuck in the gravel. And I know he got back into the race, and he what he didn't come off as worse as some of the other people who were crashed at turn one, but through no fault of his own there, he's been hit by another competitor who he either did get touched by Herter or got loose. However, that worked out, but. I don't know. I don't know that there can be any other penalty there than Scott get getting that penalty. Basically, I, I don't know. But what what do you make? What did you make of all all of that? I thought it was bullshit from the beginning. <laughs> like, like it just seemed like this is okay. Yes, it's avoidable contact, but it's not like like avoidable contact to me is you are you out you you outbreak yourself and end up driving into the side of somebody going into a corner like that's avoidable contact like you've made a decision about a racing move that you're making and you screw it up and you end up you know smashing into the side of somebody um for how many of those situations race control has let go this to me was totally like even if it was that he just got loose and needed an extra half a car width of road to gather it up and Renus sends, yeah, okay, so Renus's race gets to- is toast at that point. I agree. That sucks for Renus. But this is like a turn one mayhem. Cars get loose and they snap. And I, I guess to me that just, uh, that-, that seemed harsh, um, if-, if nothing else to me at that point. And and particularly given that it did appear to me that he got helped, like like had Colton not been there, who how did Colton Herta not get penalized for the start? <laughs> like he like that was completely like effing insane. Like he not I don't care and at that I, I don't care at all when the green flag actually flew. He was out of line and never got back in line. Like, didn't even make an attempt to get back in line. He like he like pulled out a line and was like, "Ooh, this looks nice," <laughs> and just like held up for a second and was like, "Fuck it, I'm going," and took off. And like, he passed two rows of cars by the time they got to like the 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 kink at the top of the hill in turn one. I think the the problem there so is I, I don't know, man. I'm just like the rule. The rule is that you can't be out of line when the green flag flies. He, without question, 100 percent, like it could not be more obvious, broke that rule. Yeah, 
I think the the key thing here that maybe I didn't I should have explained before or didn't or didn't really factor in was the what we've been seeing this year and how things are, are called. So I think you're right. I think they've let worse things go in terms of like Dixon and VK and and like not giving a penalty to someone. Most of the time it's VK, funnily enough, I think, um, in, in most races, uh, like when he smashed Marcus Ericsson off the track last week and like nothing happened for that. Um, right. Like how, how is this any different than that, really? Yeah. I mean, and that was totally, that more, was like purposeful. That was just like, okay, exactly. see ya. It's, like, it's, more, it's worse because Dixon, if anything, Dixon is like, is, has made a small error or has like, it's a, it's a fact of like wheel to wheel kind of combat going on. Yeah, there. It's that, like a weird situational thing. first lap, cold tires, first corner. Like, whereas the Renus in Portland is either he's intentionally put Marks off the track because he, he wants to for some reason or he's misjudged the the pass to the point where there's no other option than Marcus going off the track and in either of those cases that's like the worst thing you can do that's like that's what people should be penalized for right and uh, in the same vein the Herta one that you bring up how many times have we seen people do jump starts this year I mean we've oh, seen totally I, ju- I just I, I just keep thinking like like the <laughs> we talked about it with Alexander Rossi which yeah. I was kind of funny that yeah, it was yeah. just like that was after Road America, I think. Yeah. That it's like it was Jack Harvey, you know, I think, because Indy, the, because yeah, IndyCar Indy shared, shared the video their, on, yeah. on their Instagram and stuff. Yeah. Like, what a great start! And it's like, yeah. he and just all the drivers out of line like, and like no. blew by a bunch of guys. Like, what the hell? Yeah. Um. So I I agree with that on that front. I definitely agree that at least at least we're being consistent in not penalizing starts but like i feel like it for sure on the initial start restarts are a little bit tougher because you've got a green flag that's flying in like a weird you know in a weird place on the track it it doesn't necessarily line up with or or coincide with when the leaders are accelerating or so there's more differences in terms of like when does the acceleration happen when do that, that that dictates like when guys start to get runs on other cars and then you've got to like factor in when did the green actually come out, which is the thing that theoretically is supposed to indicate that it's okay to pull out a line on the start. It's like everybody's lined up. There's one car that's clearly way out of line way before the green flag starts. That just seems like that should be low hanging fruit for at least having to go back behind all the cars that you just blew by. Like that's an, that's an easy enough thing to figure out. Cause it's just based on your starting position that happened two corners ago. So I, I don't know. I, 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 I definitely, I felt like the, may, maybe it was not inconsistent with what's been going on, but it seems like a really obvious thing to have been able to like fix. Yeah. You know, but the- like, but the, How but many the Dixon times does this happen that everybody gets pissed off about it and like yeah. what? But the Dixon one was inconsistent, wasn't it? So we've got we've got two instances of I felt like two, it was. two different things we're discussing at at the same corner basically at the, at the start of the race where we've got what we think is something kind of being precedent set before and something that is not following the the precedent right. that has been set before. So I guess what all this does is, regardless of your opinion of who caused that. Dixon shunt there with VK or, or what happened that it's m- more evidence of kind of what Dixon calls kind of well he said uh, I don't know what's going on up there when he was referring to the to the stewards um, I'm I'm referring when he says up there he means like up in the stewards building and not like in their in their brains um, but I can't be sure for that because I didn't say it <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know but um, e- either way he was you know he's I'm like thinking just race I don't control. know what's going on up there yeah, yeah. Um, I, he's like, I, I don't know what's happening up there, and I think that's just those two incidents. Just uh, are just two of, you know, there was seventeen penalties given to twelve drivers over the course of that race, so we could have gone into a load of them. But I think those two are quite interesting to happen at that one corner where one seems a very, very obvious penalty and doesn't get penalised, and then the other one is kind of like 
I can kind of understand it from both sides personally and kind of understand why the penalty was given, but it doesn't really feel necessarily consistent with what we've seen other times during the season. So, um, yeah, I guess that was just an interesting way to end the season in terms of um, the way uh, IndyCar's being officiated and the the fact that the the six-time champion who's constantly kind of referred to as the the GOAT or one of the best or however you want to refer to Scott Dixon as, um, especially in the past few weeks where he's won these races by using innate skill that other people just don't have for him to be the one kind of calling the the race control out here he's not someone who's necessarily always that kind of guy he was doing that he's can be quite um how can i put that he's he's like he's not someone who goes and looks for controversy or is like constantly calling people out on stuff you know he's like yeah, he's, uh, he's not a he's not like a a generally high conflict individual no no, absolutely yeah. not. The opposite, pretty much, really, in most yeah. cases, right? Yeah. So so, so I thought that was significant that he was the one kind of uh, calling all that out there. Let's move on a little bit, JR. Um, I guess, what what did you think of the race in, in general? Let's kind of, let's go down that route because I guess you had Will Power kind of referring to this as being like a bit of an old school kind of kart race where there's just kind of like chaos for, for quite long periods of the race and then someone unexpected comes through to win. Um Obviously, Dixon winning is not unexpected, but I guess the way he did it by having to drive through at the start of the race and having to fight back from that kind of stuff was was interesting. I, I guess in terms of me following the race with some some people that I know, it, it kind of went from well, this is just farcical at this point. Like we can't get a restart off. Um, the driving standards look really poor, and I think it's really important to mention that that I don't think necessarily even people at the track understood how hard it was to drive an IndyCar around this track at the weekend like people kept saying to me oh it's like it's low grip because they kept seeing people like go off and it's like no it's the it's basically the exact opposite of that there is too much grip and the guys can't move their hands quick enough to like correct it if it goes wrong like you like corners like like turn nine and ten were absolutely breathtaking but I guess Kyle Kirkwood kind of described it as once you've turned in, that's kind of like, that's your input done. And like, if yeah. anything goes wrong, you're committed, you're committed to however not, much you've turned the wheel at that point. Basically. Exactly. <laughs> there's not a lot you can do because there's so much G force. The drivers just don't have the physical like strength to be able to fight it and turn the wheel. So I totally understand how, well, I don't understand because I wasn't driving in the race, but I can sympathize with the fact that it must've been absolutely horrendous to try and drive a car around that track for 95 laps on that Sunday when it was so hot as well. Um, at least I found it hot. I guess most people around there didn't find it hot, but um, the, the the fact that that was so difficult, I think did play a part, but there were so many incidents in the race that were just clearly like low speed, avoidable, like what, like late break in or just positioning yourself in stupid places. And it, it really felt farcical a lot of the time, but also would an F1 fan give their little pinky finger to have a race like that given the season that they've had and that is that in itself is a different debate because I enjoy watching Max Max Verstappen win every F1 race in a certain way because it shows the level of performance like you it's like in any sport like if you're watching Michael Jordan play basketball in his prime right it's like that people should take more enjoyment from that while it's happening because I guarantee in 20 years time when people make documentaries about how good Max Verstappen was you'll love the documentary and you'll really get into it and you'll proper enjoy it but at the time you're the one screaming at the TV like this is boring why why is he winning every race um so that's like a different debate altogether but I do think we have a high number of entertaining races in IndyCar and not all of them are as farcical as this one turned out to be but also do we just accept that these kind of races are going to happen with with the rules that we have with the the circumstances that can all come together on one day to make things like this um and should we celebrate it or should we look for ways to to try and stop this from being as as bad as it was in places yeah i think i mean there's a few things to unpack there i think you brought up a lot of like really awesome points one one the max Verstappen thing is kind of, i i think i would put that very simply as like you know if you're a sports fan you have to at some level appreciate watching winners win yeah right like you have to appreciate watching people that have put the time and effort in put all of that to use execute at the highest level it's just you know it's something that you don't that you don't see all the time and so uh, from that perspective i think it's yeah i mean i i'm with you like i 
you know, it de- it depends upon people. It depends upon the fan base being able to sort of, um, I don't know, sort of compile for themselves a a, a a way to understand and appreciate what goes into that. Which I think I've said this before. I think that is the that is the key fault of modern motorsports with cars that have too much downforce and all this kind of stuff is it's just really hard to tell that it is really hard that it's hard to do why it's hard to do like these things are just not as apparent as they as they once were when you had you watch a Santa qualifying lap and it's like holy shit like this is just you kind of know that you're watching somebody do something like at a spiritual level Uh, certainly a generation before that Gilles Villeneuve, Ronnie Peterson, you know, it, it's just, do, do we, do we look back now and kind of wish that those races were better on a more consistent basis or something? Sure. But at least I think that's, a, this is like you said, this is a whole nother conversation, but, <laughs> you know, a big part of why they weren't was because, you know, you had teams that they had like such a massive disparity and reliability was a huge issue. And so, you know, when you had guys winning Indy 500s by a lap and all that kind of stuff that, yeah, I mean, that wouldn't really fly today, but it also just wouldn't happen today. So anyway, that 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 is for another conversation. Um, in this particular case, I think that the other the other thing that factored into it, you mentioned a lot of, I think, why this race was the way that it was and why even just practice was the way that it was. You know, we had more red flags in practice and qualifying than we've had at anywhere all year, I bet. Uh-huh. Um, for, for which is primarily due to the first reason, which is the track is so high grip that you are, and the cars, because they don't have power steering, you are just totally committed, like using all of your strength to keep the thing pegged through the apex and actually just carry as much speed as the car can carry at that point. I mean, I was talking to Ryan Hunter Ray and, and Ed Carpenter down in the pit lane after qualifying. And, and I, I made the, the assertion that, cause I've had this happen a couple of times. Like when we had the arrow kit cars and St. Louis got repaved, it was like, we are trimmed the hell out, but like, it feels like there's a hundred thousand pound magnet <laughs> under the front of the car trying to drive this thing through turns one and two on full fuel. Like it's just, it's exactly what those guys were describing. Like, I, if I got, if this thing gets loose, I'm just gonna crash because I don't think I can save it. I'll be able to save it, but I will not have like once I've unloaded the steering to then try to turn back into it is just not gonna happen fast enough to do this. And so you you saw that happen a bunch over this weekend of just like up, oh, like there it goes, like it's just kind of gone. The other the other factor that I think also played a pretty significant role in the race was that the the gradient of grip, like how dramatically it went from ultra high grip to, in a relative sense, very low grip offline, like off the racing. I mean, the track was already quite high grip to start with this weekend. When it rubbered in, it became like, you know, probably felt five times grippier. You know, so you've got this very narrow window of where that where that high grip is. And so I think that was the other part of it. Like all of the guys that ended up crashing into somebody going into turn three. To me, that was just sort of misjudging the fact that the offline grip was so much lower than the online grip and not initially thinking that they're getting into trouble and then suddenly just having like all four wheels locked up going sideways in the middle of another car in the middle of the corner. So I think that those, both of those things played a role. I would, I think that over time, this track will, uh, the grip levels on and offline will just migrate closer together. Like the, the peak grip level of the track will just come down over time and that you'll have a little bit more, you'll have less variance basically, um, you know, between the two. I, I, I found it, I guess I have I have a respect for the fact that you know these guys these is this is the same group of drivers that we talk about being really elite and great you know throughout the year so it, it's it's not like I'm I'm kind of beyond the point where I'll just 
you know, some, something crazy will happen and be like, oh man, that guy must suck today. You know, like <laughs> I just don't, I don't, I don't think about it that way. So I, I just kind of, when these things happen, I just make the assumption that there must be, um, you know, some factors that are making it so that what we're watching happen here is happening. I, I think you can throw in the, that final part of the puzzle, which is, it is the last race of the season. Yeah. There probably is that slight, we talked about it on the last pod, that just for the last few weekends, we've been kind of seeing just a level of just no Fs being given in situations uh-huh. like forcing guy, guys off the track when you probably wouldn't have earlier in the year, you know. Um, so, so yeah, a lot of those things factoring in. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that I'd agree with the idea that this is like, you know, hearkening back to a, a a bygone era of great racing that we just forgot that the races used to be like this because I don't think they were quite like this. But, um, you know, it was it was definitely entertaining to watch, and I feel like it 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 again was another one of these races. You know, the last race that I can think of that kind of felt like this was Nashville last year. Yeah. Um, which shocker, Scott Dixon won that one too. <laughs> Um, that, you know, it's, it, these are the types of races that really, they just reward drivers and teams who are patient and can kind of keep the end game in mind, basically. And so I think, you know, these are races where when you, when you do see whoever's on the podium, they, what you okay. Maybe Joseph, maybe Joseph Newgarden was out of the race. Maybe Renus VK got smashed out in the first corner. Maybe this or that happened. Maybe some of the some of the people who you thought should be contenders had bad races somehow. But if you manage to stick it on the podium, that's still that's still a real like you didn't you didn't luck luck into that basically. So um, I, you know I think definitely the the podium the guys who ended up on the podium from that point of view really didn't surprise me. I guess top three in the championship. Yeah. Top three in the championship all made it to the podium in the final race of the year. So I, I guess that kind of shows you that there were some good things going on in this race in terms of like things happening as they should do. It's just the middle part that just got a bit sketchy there and kind of threw a, yeah, threw a piranha in the pool, I guess you I could think say. The, the, one th- the one thing I was just going to say that I wondered watching the race was like, would Dixon have, would Dixon have, I mean, he might, you know, because there was so much just calamity in this race i think you could have been on any strategy potentially and like get to the front at the end or whatever but i do think this was another example a la portland last year where because he got the penalty early it made the risk of going off strategy really low and so i feel like that's that has also been a weird i don't know like that's been a weird thread through a lot of dixon's top performances here is in one sh- in one way or another, either because qualifying was lousy or because he has something go wrong at the beginning of the race, just kind of throwing it up against the wall and saying, "All right, well, screw it. Like, let's do something different." And and then just being, you know, exceptional at making that work over the course of a race. So anyway, it just it, it was. I found myself thinking, like, I wonder if he. I wonder if this is one of those another one of those weird circumstances where if he actually had to have had anything go wrong. He might not have picked the strategy that he ended up winning the race on and and might that have changed where he was running in the last, you know, 20 or 30 laps. You know, I guess we'll never know. But And also if Pato takes the, the soft tire in any of the first two stops there, then potentially he's in the prime. Man, what a bummer. The prime position. Yeah. So yeah, if, if you're wondering why Pato didn't win the race from, from being in the lead there, that was the main reason was that he hadn't used the soft tire and had to make that final stop at the end, even though... There might have been a way to get to the end um, had he run a, a slightly different strategy and gone the soft earlier in the race. That was interesting. Ended up finishing ninth. And the final shout, I guess, of the pod, I just wanted to say it was kind of nice to see Ryan hunter Ray back in the in the top 10 and was one of the few guys who got into the top 10 in that kind of early running there and actually managed to like stay there or not get into significant trouble afterwards, uh, which uh, I guess kind of shows his level of experience and just being able to, to to keep things on the road. We know his comeback's not been what many of us would have liked to have seen from a, a former champion and an Indy 500 winner. But I think the impact that he's had on the team generally, like away from just actually driving the car physically has been phenomenal. And also 
when you present him with a chance like this where it's more about using that experience and 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 like you yeah basically just using his, his experience and not do anything stupid and to keep the car on the straight and narrow i think that was one of the reasons why he was in the top 10 and it was comfortably his best result since he's since he'd come back there so that was super cool to see all right jr we've had a long season i can't believe we're at the end of the season i can't believe we've we're at the uh, the end of another year of podcasting it's been another cool one uh thanks so much for your insight as always and um this feels like just the beginning because we've got so many more topics that we haven't even got into from laguna that we need to to talk about and i'm sure we're gonna have plenty of driver interviews over the off season um so yeah just think of this as the the start of another season i guess is the best way to look at it because we'll have plenty of interviews i mentioned earlier we'll have uh, some of the um some of the the younger champions coming up through the through the ladder on for for interviews and we'll definitely get some drivers back to talk about stuff um as much as it's called an off season we're basically into testing and uh, all of the silly season yet to resolve so we'll definitely keep a close eye on that we could probably do an ep- a whole episode on the silly season as it stands um, but we're not gonna have time to do that this week so uh, i'll just have to get you back jr i hope that's all right and uh We'll tackle some of those episodes in the in the coming weeks and months. But for now, that's all for this week's episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. The Athletic.